turn with me to John chapter 20. We'll read verses 11 through 18. I'll move over to Matthew 28. John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. We'll read verses 8 through 15. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, for they, there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And then they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, just the joy of gathering together and to contemplate afresh the wonderful resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. I pray that these truths, the, the facts and details of the story would take on that new freshness. I pray, Lord, that you would give us attentiveness to your word and that you would transform us as we study it together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. No one saw the actual resurrection of Jesus, but it was clear, just based upon the evidence, what had happened. The stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty. The manner in which the grave clothes were still lying there in their place, and the fact that the face napkin was folded off by itself, 
angels were seen bearing witness to his resurrection, the guards were shocked and became as dead men. Last Sunday, we considered the empty tomb together, itself enough proof of the supernatural event that occurred on that Sunday some 2,000 years ago. But the Lord Jesus would not stop there in giving evidence to his resurrection. He would himself appear to many. Let's recall a brief chronology of events leading up to where we are here this morning. On that blessed resurrection Sunday, some women depart early in the morning in order to anoint Jesus' body with spices. Remember, they had gathered these before the Sabbath. Then the Sabbath hit, and so they rested as um, accordance with, with Sabbath regulations. And now on Sunday morning, they come with spices to anoint Jesus' body. They wonder about how they're going to roll the stone away. But when they arrive on the scene, they see that the stone has already been rolled away. Probably what happens is Mary immediately runs to tell Peter and the other disciple, whom we believe to be John, while the rest of the women enter the tomb and don't see Jesus' body, but suddenly are given an angelic visitation. These women are told that Jesus has risen, and they're given a message to bring back to the disciples. Remember, even with a special inclusion for Peter, make sure you also tell Peter, who is probably Of all the disciples, the one perhaps most distraught, for not only was he dealing with the loss of Jesus, but with his most intimate knowledge of his own denials of Jesus. After he had adamantly told Jesus, I will never deny you. The women with mixed emotions, we're told fear and joy, run to tell the disciples. Fear out of ridicule and persecution keeps them from saying anything to anyone else along the way until they reach the disciples. Meanwhile, Mary has found Peter and the other disciple who run to see the tomb themselves. We're told that one outruns the other, but eventually both go in. They see the linen cloth. They see the folded napkin. And at least one of the disciples on the scene at that moment believes, we're told. Even then, yet not understanding the scriptures and what they said about this, but believe. They go back home. Now, this morning, we pick up with Mary Magdalene who's now arriving back at the tomb. The remaining, those other two disciples have left. And this time, she's going to look into the tomb. She's going to take a closer look for herself. She'll be met with angels. And she'll have the most glorious meeting. A meeting she had no expectation for. Then we'll see this same individual meet with a group of ladies. Who are on their way to go and tell The disciples. Meanwhile, some of the soldiers will depart and announce news of what happened to Jewish authorities. So in a sermon entitled, Women and Soldiers Testify, I want to consider, first of all, the testimony of women, and then second of all, we'll talk about the testimony of soldiers. And we'll note together how both sets of testimony bear witness to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. First of all, the testimony of women We start with Mary Magdalene. Mark reports to us in Mark 16, verses 9 through 11, that the first one that Jesus appeared to was Mary Magdalene. He also says that this one who had seven demons cast out of her. Now, there are, when this is not a day or time for a sermon on the endings of Mark, we'll deal with that at some point. But I will just say that that same description given about to Mary Magdalene is also given in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. 
that she was described there also as a woman who had been possessed by seven demons, and the Lord had cast them out from her. John, though, is the one who gives us the play-by-play. Mary had discovered the tomb earlier that morning, run and gotten John and Peter, told them about Jesus' body being gone. She doesn't know anything about a resurrection. She just says, they've taken the Lord's body. I don't know where they've taken it. Peter and John come and confirm that fact, and then again, leave the scene. Now Mary returns to the tomb. And she takes a closer look. She lingers there. We're told that she's weeping for Jesus. Her love for Jesus is evident. And due to this longing, we're going to see a tremendous blessing that she receives. I mentioned last time that we could guess at several reasons why the news of the resurrection first comes to ladies. Especially in a culture that had a tendency to not give women a place of honor. In fact, even their testimonies were often not admissible because they weren't considered to be of the same par as a man's testimony to something. Again, just further authenticity of the account. Now, if this was a made-up account in that culture, they wouldn't make up women being the first ones to hear about that. Again, there's just these notes of authenticity here. And we also see something about the value that our Lord has for both men and women. But glorious news to be shared with women first. Certainly, like I said, many reasons have been given by many different commentators, but I wonder if the answer could be as simple as, why was it given to these women first? Perhaps because they were the ones there. (laughs) They were the ones spending time at the tomb. They were the ones longing and looking for Jesus. They were the ones with desires so full that they had gathered together spices, and they're coming early in the morning on Sunday to come and anoint Jesus' body. And I think there is... An attendant lesson for us here. So it is for those who attend to the things of the Lord that they receive the blessing of the Lord himself. Certainly we know that it is God's grace and operation when a man longs for relationship with Jesus. A sinful man who's dead in his sins doesn't long and love Jesus apart from a change of his heart. So we know that God's grace is operating in the person's heart who loves and cherishes and longs for more of Jesus. But it is nonetheless true that those who are devoted to meeting with the Lord are the ones who then receive the blessings of that pursuit. Those who rise early in the morning or stay up late at night in order to spend time with the Lord derive the benefits of attending to Him. And there is no greater benefit than just knowing Him more. Falling in deeper intimacy and relationship with Him. Those who spend time with the Lord in devotions each day. Those who set aside time for corporate worship, for singing, for giving, for attending to God's word. They receive this rich blessing. The Lord loves to reveal more and more of himself to his children. Sometimes the changes that happen are imperceptible. It's kind of like as we watch children grow, you don't really perceive differences every day, do you? But all of a sudden one day it's like, Since when did they start talking like that? (laughs) Since when did they start running like that? Since since when were they able to read like that? And there's lots of small adjustments that have happened in their life over time, but it's it's one of the beauties of photography, right? Sometimes I know we're like, man, you've gotten so big. And then we'll look at a picture and be like, you really have gotten big. I couldn't remember how much you've grown over that time. And the the change happens sometimes imperceptibly. We We don't see it daily all the times. But meanwhile, over the course of a lifetime, it becomes evident that 
This baby is no longer a baby. Huh, moms? Your babies are no longer babies as they grow up. So it is spiritually. Those who attend to the things of the Lord, sometimes you don't notice it on a daily basis, but over the course of a year, five years, ten years, twenty years, a lifetime, those who spend time with Jesus are changed. And it's not a change that's a showy change, some sort of fleshly change. Quite the opposite. It's a change that shows itself in humility, but nonetheless a life that gives glory to the Lord. When Moses spoke with God and he came down from the mountain, remember? What happened with his face? His face is shining. So much so that people are scared of looking at him. He put a veil over his face. But he was transformed by meeting with God. Similarly, we, see, we read in Acts 4, as people are watching Peter and John, and they knew that these men were uneducated men. A couple of fishermen. These were uneducated, untrained men. And they're amazed. And we're told this. The people began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Spending time with Jesus transforms you. And here we see a lady who had spent a lot of time with Jesus, had followed Jesus, had longed for Jesus, was weeping outside of Jesus' tomb, concerned about where Jesus' body has been laid. Jesus was the one and only Savior, the long-awaited Messiah, He's man's only hope. And yet, was he now dead? And to add insult to injury, had someone now taken his body? Would they leave him any dignity? They had stripped him. They had slashed him. They had spit at him. They had taunted him. They had put a crown of thorns on his head. They had pierced his side. They had crucified him. Was there anything left? Would they now take his body? Put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment. How would it feel if just two days, three days earlier, your loved one had been put into the ground? And now you come to visit the grave. And you find a hole. You find it dug up and you see no casket there. How would you feel? How would you feel about that? Hurt? Perplexed? What have you done with the body? Could you not afford the dignity of my loved one to leave them, to let them rest in peace? How would you respond? Here's Mary. She's weeping. She stoops to look inside of the tomb, and she sees two angels, one positioned at the head and the other at the foot of the place where Jesus had been laid. It's an interesting description given to us. I'm really curious if John, we don't know for sure, but if John meant this to bring a visual picture to our mind. There's something very significant about an angel being positioned at both the head and the foot of something in the Old Testament. The very place where the Ark of the Covenant was set up, the mercy seat on top of that, there were two cherubim, one foot at the foot and at the head of the Ark of the Covenant. We're told in Exodus 25 that the Lord said, the Lord God said, it's from here that I will speak to Israel. We know it is there that would sit inside of the Holy of Holies and the high priest on the Day of Atonement would, after making sacrifice for his own sins, would then go into the Holy Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat, which was shadowed by these two angels. I wonder if it's meant to be a picture for us that, once again, Jesus Christ was the Passover lamb. He was the atoning sacrifice 
He propitiated the wrath of God on our account. He is the meeting place. God says, this is where I will meet with you. Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. The angels ask her, woman, why are you crying? I think that's where the emphasis is. Why are you crying? Why are you crying right now? The angels know what Christ has done. They see Mary crying and they're like, this is utterly inappropriate to the occasion. They knew that her weeping was not tears of joy. They were tears of sadness and sorrow. Her weeping would only make sense in the angelic perspective, would only make sense if Jesus' body was still there. If his body was still there, then let us all weep. Not only Mary, but all of us. For there is no hope for us if Jesus is not risen from the dead. Why are you weeping, Mary? Woman, why are you weeping? If Jesus' body was there, all of our hope would be gone. But his body was not there. So the angels are perplexed. Why are you weeping? I wonder how often the angels are perplexed by our unbelief. (laughs) I wonder how often they look down and go, Jess, Jess, why are you worried? Why Why are you so stressed? Why are you weeping? Before we criticize Mary too much, I wonder how often we fall into similar circumstances. Crying, fretting, worrying, anxious over matters for which our tears are completely misplaced. How many of the things that we worry about never even actually happen? And then of those that actually happen, how much good did our worrying do us? Right? What did it actually help? Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I'm going to stop there for just a minute. You know, Jesus here is speaking about what we would consider to be like the bare bones needs. Like, I won't survive without food, eventually, right? I need some sort of clothing. What are the sorts of things that we often worry about? Are they of that sort of essential nature? Or they have things that we could go one way or the other, and it really would be okay either way. Here Jesus says, don't even worry about these needs. He goes on, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And Jesus' storybook Bible, in telling this story, shows has a picture of birds pushing grocery carts. You, know? <laughs> you see birds going to the grocery store to pick up their food for a week or you know, a couple of weeks? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon, all of his glory, clothed himself like one of these. Again, Jesus' storybook Bible has these flowers with like clothing put on the flowers. Right? This isn't like this. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then about what we'll eat or what we'll drink or what we'll wear for clothing. The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Is that not true? (laughs) Is that not true? The situation reminds me of the uh, story, a story from the days of Elisha. 
2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha had been informing the king of Israel regarding the plans of enemy nations around Israel. And it so perplexes the king of Aram that he asks his servant to do an investigation within his own household. He says, who among us is for the king of Israel? In other words, he's saying, who's a traitor? Somebody's telling the king of Israel our plans. Because before we even get there, they're already ready for us. And the servant replies, no, alas, my master, it's, it's, not, it's not a traitor. It's the prophet Elisha in Israel. He tells the king of Israel everything. He goes on to say, even the words you speak in your bedroom, he's speaking to the king of Israel. They discover that Elisha is in Dothan. And so they send horses and chariots and a great army to go out and seize Elisha. They surround the city, we're told, at night. Now Elisha's attendant wakes up and sees this. And he cries out to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? What are we going to do? And Elisha replies, Don't fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha prays that his servant's eyes might be opened, and when the Lord does so, the servant beholds that the mountain is full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When the Arameans attack, Elisha prays, and all of them are struck with blindness. And then the scene is like, it's almost comical. Elisha then leads this this huge army of blind men straight on over to Samaria, right to the king of Israel. He leads the blind army right to the king of Israel. The king of Israel looks at him and goes, oh, and, the, and again, Elisha prays, and their eyes are restored vision, and there they are surrounded by Israel's armies and in front of the king of Israel. The king of Israel asks, should I just strike them all down? And Elisha says, no, give them bread and water, send them back home. And when they do that, they never have a problem with the marauding bands of the Arameans again. They never come back. I mentioned this story to say, there's Elisha's servant, scared to death, worried. And Elisha goes, why are you worried? Your worry is misplaced. Your tears are misplaced. This is all in the Lord's hands. Mary replies, though, I I weep because they've taken away the body of my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. It's interesting here. Mary seems unaffected by the fact that she's talking to angels. (laughs) She's like so so kind of one-track mind on this, where is Jesus' body? There's no recorded answer from the angels. Instead, Mary turns around and she sees a figure in front of her. So she's looked into the tomb, now she turns around and now she sees a figure in front of her. For some reason, she doesn't recognize that it is Jesus. It could be that her eyes are clouded over with tears. It could be the brightness of looking into the tomb and now looking outside of the tomb or... It could be that Jesus' resurrected body is not instantaneously recognizable. Or it could be like the experience that happened with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, who were told specifically were kept from recognizing Jesus until Jesus uh, until their eyes are open when Jesus you know, breaks bread and blesses it, and all of a sudden they realize that it's Jesus, and then Jesus goes away from them. Similarly, we know that the disciples, when they're out in the boats, Jesus is on the beach, they don't recognize that it's Jesus at the start, until, remember, he doesn't cast the nets on the other side of the boat, they get all the fish, and then instantly Peter's like, it's the Lord! And we're told that he was, he was not dressed with very much clothing because he was working, so he puts on his clothes and then jumps into the water and goes, goes into shore. Gotta love Peter. So, 
for whatever reason, she doesn't recognize him at first. She certainly wasn't expecting to see him like this. I wonder how often we also fall into a similar condition. I wonder how often we don't perceive the Lord's presence with us. The Lord promised to never leave us nor forsake us. How often are we like Mary, before we criticize Mary again? How often are we like her? Oh, Lord, where are you in the midst of all of this? And there it is, just because we don't have eyes to see his amazing presence with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus asks her, woman, why are you crying? Again, same question. Why are you weeping? Why are you crying? Who are you seeking? Now, Mary makes a guess here that this is a gardener. And she hopes that perhaps, as she starts to think through the ideas of that, the gardener might have been present earlier. Maybe he has seen something. Maybe he's asking me this question because he's an eyewitness to what happened. Maybe I can get some information from him. She hopes that he might tell her where Jesus' body is and that she might go and get Jesus' body and take it away. Now, I'm sure that these questions were pondered retrospectively just as we right now have the benefit of reading it after the events, right? So we read this and like, what an interesting question from Jesus, you know? Why are you crying, Mary? Who are you looking for? Who are you seeking? I'm sure she pondered those retrospectively. She was crying because she didn't realize what had happened. She came looking for a dead Jesus because she didn't truly understand Jesus' greatness. She woefully underestimated her Lord. Her wrongful guess about the identity of this man, though, is also kind of interesting, I think. In some sense, we could say that Jesus is the ultimate gardener. He's the one through whom all things were created. So therefore, we know that it was through Jesus the Garden of Eden was specially prepared for Adam and Eve. And now in this garden, Jesus was bringing about a new creation. He would be the one who ultimately would remove all the thorns and thistles. He would remove the curse of the ground just as he removes the curse of the law of sin and death and grants grace and forgiveness to sinners, those trusting in him. (laughs) Now Jesus can't wait any longer. And isn't it fascinating? All it takes is one word. All it takes is one word. At first Jesus said, woman, but now he says, Mary. And as soon as Mary is called by name, she knows who's speaking to her now. She might not have visually recognized Jesus, but she knew when her Lord called her name. Our name is an interesting thing, isn't it? Our ears perk up whenever we hear our name, right? Somebody would be calling somebody else, but if it's Jess, I'm thinking they're talking to me, right? (laughs) She knew... Her Lord's voice as he called her by name. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? John 10, Jesus said, To him the doorkeeper opens, speaking of the shepherd, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by name, and he leads them out. Isn't it glorious as the population continues to increase, and you know we're all put into categories and numbers, we're giving social security numbers and all the rest. Isn't it glorious to know the Lord knows our name? We're not just some number but a person uniquely made in God's image. He calls the stars by name. He calls his children, his sheep, by name. Isaiah 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he has formed you, O Israel. Do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
You are mine. Pink notes. One word only did he utter, Mary. But that was sufficient to transform the weeper into a worshiper. After his first word, when she supposed him to be the gardener, she turned away from him. Her attitude was still towards the tomb. Because we're told, as Jesus says her name, she turns around again. So she must have said, she looked and saw what she thought was the gardener. She asked the question. She looks back at the tomb like, where is his body? I don't know where it is. And then she hears, Mary. And she turns around with a completely different frame of reference. Now that he called her by name, she turns back. She turns her back on the tomb and she falls at the feet of her Lord. Again, what a beautiful picture of what happens for us. What happens when a person is saved? They've attended to the things that ultimately will just fade away. Things that will not last. They've been looking after things that dead men look after. But when their names are called by the Lord, they turn to him. They're turned from weepers to worshipers. Mary got far more than she asked for. (laughs) Will you show me where his body is? She was given, can we say, exceedingly, abundantly, far beyond all that she could even ask or think. She's not thinking or asking about seeing the living Jesus. She wants to find his body. And now she's given this glorious moment of a face-to-face with the living Lord Jesus, risen from the dead. She immediately responds, Rabboni! teacher and she reaches out to cling to jesus we know that this is what she's doing because jesus says mary stop clinging to me there's been a lot of debate about these words from jesus and i don't want to spend a whole lot of time with them what does he mean what does he not mean i I, the, the it's a prohibition in the present tense in greek which usually when there's an option usually means stop doing something you're presently doing So it's not stop, don't do it at all, ever. It's stop doing what you're presently doing. So in other words, Jesus isn't saying here, you can't touch me. Remember, he even says to Thomas, right? Go ahead and touch me. So it's not that Jesus' body was untouchable. It's that, I think what Jesus is saying here is, stop clinging to me, to Mary. Stop clutching me. I'm sure it was like, like you remember the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon, she She longs for her beloved. She goes out into the streets looking for him. And when she finds him, it says that she clung to him. She's holding on to him. She doesn't want to lose him. I think that's what Mary's feeling. I don't want to lose you again, Jesus. I'm going to hold on to you tight. What Mary doesn't understand is that she'll never lose Jesus. Because Jesus will never lose her. But the way in which he's going to be present in her life will be different than it was before. It won't be as he was in his earthly ministry. He's about to ascend to his father and he's going to give the Holy Spirit. He won't be physically present as he had been, but the latter case will be better for them than the former was. Jesus says this on earlier occasions. He says, it will be better for you that I go away, that I send the helper to be with you. It's as if Jesus is saying to Mary, Mary, stop clinging to me. I haven't yet ascended to my father, but I soon will. Go tell my brothers. Mary must go forward with a message. She had a mission to complete, to report to the rest of the disciples and tell them that Jesus had risen from the dead and be returning to, to his and their father and God. The message of Jesus' resurrection and appearance would come first through the woman who had been set free from seven demons. 
What a glorious reminder that the Lord uses broken vessels to bring about his wondrous gospel to others. If it were not so, none of us would be included, right? We're all a bunch of sinners. We're all a bunch of broken vessels that are in need of his ongoing grace, forgiveness, and mercy. And what a wonderful message to deliver. Jesus tells his disciples that the God and Father, his God and Father, is also their God and Father. You see, through Jesus' finished work on the cross, sinful men who repent and believe in Christ are reconciled to God. Jesus' death and resurrection obtained forgiveness for his people, and he grants them eternal life. The door to heaven is open now for those who are in Christ. We're made fit to enter into God's presence because of what Jesus did for us. Through Jesus' wrath-bearing sacrifice, his disciples now have access to God the Father, just as Jesus does. I find it interesting the way it's described here. It doesn't say, I go back to our Father and our God. He says, I go back to my Father and God and your Father and God. I think here there's a, still a reminder that Jesus' sonship is of a different nature than ours, ultimately, right? Jesus is God's Son by the very nature that he is God the eternal Son, right? He is that by nature. His sonship is eternal. We're made sons by adoption through the work of Jesus on our behalf. But we are granted all the blessings and privileges that come with sonship. We receive close and intimate relationship with God. Romans 8.15, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons. By which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifying with our spirit that we're children of God. And what, is, what are the children of God entitled to? What is it that we're given? What are we blessed with? 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. God and Father. He's the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's also our God and Father, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There is no better news to share. The creator, the one and only God, whom we have offended by our sin and incurred his righteous judgment, has sent his son Jesus to die in the place of sinners that sinners who repent and believe in him might be forgiven and granted eternal life. We next see Jesus appear to a group of ladies, but for this we, see, we have to turn over to Matthew 28, starting in verse 8. We see that this group of ladies who had, who had done a little bit further investigation than Mary had at first are still on their way to go and tell the disciples about what they have now been told by the angels. And while they're on their way, we're told that Jesus met them. And he said, greetings. Having approached, they grasped and, and his, at his feet and worshipped him. Jesus said to them, don't fear. Go and announce my brothers that they might go to Galilee and there they will see me. These other women are in the midst of obeying angelic instruction. They're from this earlier announcement made to them. And in this case, the women immediately recognize that it's Jesus. See, so we have different occasions here. Here they immediately recognize that it's Jesus. And they begin to worship him. Jesus quiets their fears. He commissions them to go and tell his brothers to go to Galilee. And to, that they'll see him there. Uh, I want to just note this real, quick, real quickly. This phrase... Tell my brothers. Here he's referring to his disciples, but he calls them 
brothers. Now earlier, before this, Jesus said, I now call you friends. I now call you friends. And now he calls them brothers. More intimate than the beautiful name friends. Psalm 22, the psalm which gives so many detailed prophetic descriptions of Jesus' death. Or Psalm 22 is this crazy psalm that just describes so many of the details accompanying Jesus' death. Even before crucifixion as a, as a Roman torture device and death, death-giving device was even invented. But in verse 22 of Psalm 22 we read, I will tell your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly I will praise you. We read in Hebrews 2. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For this reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Tell my brothers. I'll see them in Galilee. Tell my brothers. Think of other famous stories. Remember, where are the disciples right now? They're kind of in hiding. They're... Worried that even if they hadn't denied him like Peter did, they all deserted him. Remember the story of Joseph? Remember what Joseph's brothers did to him? I'm sure that they were scared when Joseph then finally says, I'm your brother. But upon further reflection, they see that Joseph means this with love and acceptance. Even those brothers who had plotted to kill him and then decided to sell him into slavery instead, Joseph ultimately calls his brothers. Jesus calls these men who had deserted him and denied him his brothers. Again, isn't that glorious news for us? That Jesus loves sinners? J.C. Ryle said, To trust deserters and to show confidence in backsliders was a compassion which man can hardly understand. His first thought is to bring back the wanderers, to bind up the wounds of their consciences, to reanimate their courage, to restore them to their former place. So we read at the beginning of our service today, Psalm 103. What a glorious psalm. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. He hasn't given to us in accordance with our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now we move from the bewilderment uh, and joy of Jesus' followers to the fear of the guards and Jewish authorities. The, The women here had news of hope and victory to announce, while the guards have news of confusion and failure. Let's quickly look at the testimony of soldiers. The guards were overwhelmed by the earthquake and the angelic appearance. The angel had rolled the stone away and sat upon it. And these men, were told, were like dead men in the light of this angelic majesty. At some point, the guards roused themselves from that state. And some of them were told, run to the city to report to their superiors what has happened. We pick up on this in Matthew 28, verse 11. The chief priests don't seem to doubt the soldier's report. They don't put together any investigation. There's no like, let's go check it out for ourselves. There's none of that. They believe what the soldiers have said. It's interesting to me. I find it so fascinating that while the disciples doubt what's going on, as the women tell them about it, they're doubtful. 
Here the religious leaders who hate Jesus believe the soldier's testimony immediately. Dwight Pentecost says, While the disciples disbelieved the report of the resurrection and sought confirmation of it, the Sanhedrin believed the report and sought an explanation to deny it. Note here, they believe that this has happened, they just want to deny it. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So they put together a scheme. We see this in verses 12 through 15. So the chief priests gathered together with the elders and they hatch a plan. They bribe the soldiers, we're told, with a sufficient amount of silver. We don't know how much. It just said literally, with enough. <laughs> they give them enough silver to tell a lie. Now in this case, I'm, I bet that the soldiers are more than happy to find some sort of other explanation anyway. Because they know their gooses are cooked otherwise. So probably might not have taken a whole lot of money to make this thing happen. But what the Jewish authorities are concerned about, remember, they were concerned this whole time about Jesus' body being stolen by the disciples. It's the reason why they put a seal on the stone. It's the reason why they put all the soldiers there at the grave. So now what they're going to do is say has happened what they were trying to prevent from happening. The action is dripping with irony. The authorities try to cover up the resurrection... By advancing the very story they had worked so hard to prevent from being told. Right? We don't want Jesus' body to be stolen by his disciples. So we'll seal the stone. We'll put guards in front of it. The guards say, angel came, rolled the stone back. His body's gone. We're scared to death. Here we're telling you about it. And now they're saying, well, let's just say that the disciples stole his body. But all of your actions were put up to stop that from being the case. Also, these same authorities, you know, just, just as a reminder, or the same ones who asked for a sign from Jesus, yet, yet everything Jesus did, the authorities attempted to discredit or remove evidence for. This is the reason for the two readings we had this morning. Uh, when Lazarus is risen from the dead, what do they want to do with Lazarus? Kill him. Because they're concerned people are believing in Jesus because they're seeing a man who was dead now walking around. Here, when Jesus rises from the dead, they advance a lie to cover it up. Carl had read for us, you know, they're they're taunting Jesus while he's on the cross. You're the king of the Jews? Come on down! Come on down, O king! We'll believe you then! We'll believe you if you come down from the cross. What's the greater miracle? Jesus to wiggle his way off the cross? Or Jesus to rise from the dead? You see, they wouldn't believe no matter what Jesus did. We see their hardness of heart. MacArthur notes, the religious leaders had accused Jesus of working miracles in the power of Satan, of being an associate of sinners, of breaking God's law by healing on the Sabbath, of blasphemy for claiming to be the Messiah and God's son. They perverted both biblical and rabbinical justice in order to convict him. They employed blackmail to get him crucified. They used armed force to try to keep his dead body in the grave. And they now engaged in bribery to hide the truth of his resurrection. But even if that was the case, think about the story that they're telling. Even if this is the case, how would the, how would the guards know the disciples stole his body if they were sleeping when they came? Think about that for a moment. <laughs> we were sleeping, and his disciples came. How can you say the disciples stole his body? You were sleeping. Unless you were awake. Were you awake, or were you sleeping? If you were awake, you could say who was there, but then why'd you let him take him? And if you were sleeping, then how do you know that they took him? And even if a group of the guards were sleeping, 
Would they not wake up when the massive stone was moved? Or when the disciples entered the tomb to pull out Jesus' body? And why would the disciples leave the wrappings as they did? And why would they fold the head covering the way they did? There was never a body found. Why didn't they send out emissaries to go and track down all the disciples and figure out if they could find the body? Why would the disciples still be in disbelief? Only later, after having seen the resurrected Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit, speak with boldness and courage. Why would so many of them die for that testimony if it was all a fabrication and a lie? How could so many people claim to have seen Jesus and their stories match up? The Sanhedrin tells these soldiers, if you'll take this bribe, we'll also defend you to the governor. And the soldiers take the bribe and circulate the lie. The very fact that this happened here right on the, right as soon as the news comes out that there's already an attack on the resurrection, it just bears witness to the fact that there's been an attack on the resurrection from that day forward. There are multitudes of theories against the resurrection today that all kinds of skeptics and atheists have pushed forward. It's interesting that few of them pushed forward the plot that the Jewish leaders advanced. (laughs) There's some that try to still advance that Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples. But a lot of the other theories involve other things, which the soldiers and the Jews did not think at all. For example, that Jesus swooned, that he wasn't actually dead. Everybody believed he was dead. (laughs) Uh, That they went to the wrong tomb. Nobody thought anybody went to the wrong tomb. (laughs) They knew which tomb it was. They were there. So you see, it's interesting that a lot of these other theories that are advanced, they're even discredited by the theory that was put forward by, or this lie that was put forward by the uh, Jewish authorities at that time. We ought not be surprised that these many other theories just contradict one another in themselves. The Jews and Romans didn't deny an empty tomb. They didn't think Jesus had swooned. They didn't believe Jesus' disciples were mistaken regarding which tomb Jesus had been laid in. They just perpetuated a lie that the disciples stole the dead body while the Roman soldiers who were placed there specifically to guard the tomb were supposedly sleeping which would involve, typically, their death if they had done that. Even the fact that the soldiers lived through it shows there is a conspiracy. Because if that was really what happened, and the soldiers admit that openly, they wouldn't be living very long. There's some duplicity going on here. I find this just so fascinating that even this fabricated lie that's put together by the religious leaders just ends up supporting the fact of the resurrection. MacArthur says it so well. The truth of the resurrection is so absolute that even a lie against it helps prove it. Whether the testimony is from Jesus' friends or from his enemies, the same conclusion is inevitable. No other historical event is so thoroughly attested by sound evidence as is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've heard some say, if you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you might as well deny all of history. Unlike Lazarus, who whom Jesus rose to life only to die again, Jesus' resurrection was quite different. He rose to an incorruptible life. Remember when Lazarus was called forth, they had to roll the stone away, and as he walked forward, they had to unbandage him. Jesus rose without need of openings and unwrappings. Death couldn't hold Jesus. Quite the contrary, Jesus brought death to death. And it is in Jesus' resurrection that Mankind's only hope of salvation in life is found. So it's not strange that Satan, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, 
would mount such a vicious attack against the resurrection and that it continues to this very day. And I will just note here in closing that if, if the devil can't get people to deny the resurrection through one of these faulty lies and theories, then he certainly, I'm sure, would settle for just a distracted remembrance of Resurrection Sunday. Perhaps even, not to harp on this too much, but renaming Resurrection Sunday to Easter or Spring Celebration or perhaps filling the day in which we specifically remember Jesus' resurrection with bunnies and eggs and marshmallow peeps. Although I do like marshmallow peeps. You know, I find it interesting that there's often such a concern that we keep Christ in Christmas. But sometimes it doesn't seem to be the same concern that Christ has kept on Resurrection Sunday. We ought to have just as much passion, if I can play on words here, just as much passion for Jesus' passion as we do for Jesus' incarnation. My point is not to say you can't have an Easter egg hunt. My point isn't any of these things. Whatever you do is up to you. But what I am saying is that Jesus must be central to all that we do. The women and the soldiers agree. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the glorious news of Jesus' resurrection. Lord, I pray that as we approach Resurrection Sunday here very soon, it's always appropriate to remember, Jesus, that you are alive and no longer in the grave. But certainly at this time of year when we specially reflect upon that, and it, there's a tendency for more people to show up in churches I pray that this glorious news, truth be told, our only hope, would just bring tremendous conviction and joy upon sinners. Conviction because they would recognize that they are worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. And that you treat sin seriously because it even meant, in order for you to save some, it meant the death of your own son. But tremendous joy because there's hope. Trusting in our own ability to work is hopeless. It's depressing. And so often we chase after things of this earth that are quite literally dead. Have no life. Lord, I pray that you would grant an awakening... Lord, I pray that you would open blind eyes, that you would grant dead hearts life, bring them to life. Lord, that you would advance your glorious gospel and that we would find the same joy to this very day, announcing, just as those ladies did, Christ is risen. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.